Hi, everyone, and welcome to the 117th episode of the Atlas Society Asks. My name is Lawrence Olivo. I'm the associate editor here at the Atlas Society, the leading nonprofit organization introducing young people to the ideas of Ayn Rand in fun and creative ways through our Atlas University seminars, our graphic novels, and social media content. Today, I'm joined by our founder, Dr. David Kelly, along with senior fellow and uh, objectivist writer, Robert Trzynski, and we're going to be talking about current events going on in the country through an objectivist lens. We have two topics today. The signed today Biden inflation reduction bill, along with a Supreme Court decision regarding executive power. We're going to start things off today with Rob when it comes to the inflation bill. So, Rob, take it away. Oh, okay, so I want to talk about this because this is the big, this is the big legislative accomplishment that uh, that Joe Biden is claiming as you know he's he's sort of been up against the ropes politically, and so he had to, he had to put a win on the board. It's okay, we passed this Inflation Reduction Act. So the first thing to say about it is, like a lot of acts in uh, you know Washington is the land of A is non A, uh, like a lot of bills. Uh, the name of this bill has nothing to do really with what it actually does. What the name of this the Inflation Reduction Act. It's just, but this is the Build Back Better Act, which is this big stimulus bill that they were going to try to pass last year that didn't pass. And then they scaled it down and repackaged it. But when they repackaged it, they said, well, wait a minute, everybody's concerned about inflation. So let's call it the Inflation Reduction Act. I think we're going to see a lot of bills with the words inflation reduction in their names, which will have nothing necessarily to do with any of the contents of those bills. Um, I actually think they do think this is going to reduce inflation in a twisted way. I'll get to that in a moment. But really, let, let's back up a little bit on this issue of inflation, because I think that's that's the context for this. So what happened with inflation, I, you know, Richard Salzman can give probably more detailed explanation, uh, one of our other Atlas Society scholars. But the the simplified version of it that I would give, it goes something like this. The pandemic hit, and because of the pandemic, we had a slowdown in production. In production, there was about a four or five percent contraction of the economy in 2020. So, because of that, there was a slowdown in production, which means fewer goods and services are being made. But the political leadership decided, well, we don't want anybody to actually feel the effects of this slowdown. Uh, for various, it was bipartisan for different reasons. The Republicans and the Democrats both decided we don't want anybody to actually feel the effects of this. We don't want it to feel like a recession for people. So we're going to pass massive stimulus bills, trillions of dollars of money, free money going out from the government to you know to into people's bank accounts uh, with, the, of course, the obligatory letter signed by the president of the United States saying, hey, I just gave you $5,000 in stimulus. Aren't I a great person? And that's the usual politics. But you know, it, like I said, Paul, Washington is the land of AS non-A. The idea is that we have a recession, but maybe if we pump enough money out there, nobody will notice we're having a recession. It won't feel like a recession. We can have a recession that isn't a recession. Uh, so what they, you know, the, the effect of, if you have fewer goods being produced and a lot more cash going out there, a lot of money going out there, that's naturally going to lead to inflation. Now, it, it didn't do it right away because, you know, people were still kind of hunkered down in 2020. They were still, you know, a lot of people took that stimulus money and it went into their savings account and they didn't spend it. But by late, 2021, you know, had the vaccines that were reducing the effect of the pandemic. And of course, also a lot of people just decided we're over the pandemic. We want it to be over with. We're, we're gone. We're done taking actions. People started going out and started wanting to have fun. They wanted to go out to eat. They wanted to, to buy things. They wanted to, uh, they wanted to spend, they were ready to spend all of that money that was sitting in their accounts at the same time that you still had a lot of, uh, effect from the recession of supply chains being disrupted and not really rebuilt back to normal. And um, uh, uh, there were still stimulus checks, stimulus payments and, and uh, uh, child tax credit payments going out to people that made it less necessary for people to go back to work. So there was a lot of things there that were still, you know, people started spending again, but there were a lot of things preventing the production from ramping back up to match that spending. So naturally what you got is you get a big wallop of inflation that hit us really at the end of last year and early this year. Um, so this is a totally government created problem because of the fact that you know, we had a recession and nobody wanted us to feel that we had a recession. And of course, politicians still don't want us to feel as if we have a recession. Uh, 
So they want to keep on doing the stimulus payments. And this is what this bill, this so-called Inflation Reduction Act, is just a scaled down version of the, uh, the, the big stimulus packages, the big multi-trillion dollar stimulus packages that caused this inflation in the first place. So it's an Inflation Reduction Act that consists of doing the same thing that caused the inflation, but doing it smaller. Uh, and you know this is why we have. I mean, this is the product of sort of the moderate Democrats in Congress, right? So you had Joe Manchin, senator from West Virginia, who was the one who balked at another big multi-trillion-dollar spending bill. But you know, he's a moderate Democrat. You know, he's a moderate, but he's a moderate Democrat. So he still eventually got talked into. Well, maybe if we only spend a couple hundred billion dollars, then that would be okay. And so he he agreed to the scaled-down version of it. Uh, so it's it's again it's Washington is the land of of, of non A where uh, every, you know they want to have everything you know, an Inflation Reduction Act that's based on the same thing that caused inflation, and the thing that caused inflation was we had a recession that we didn't want to admit was a recession. All right, so that's the big picture, and the interesting thing is why they think they're talk they've talked themselves into thinking this is inflation reducing. Now there's a couple things in there. One is that they have a, uh, a provision here which gives new funding to the IRS to hire a lot more agents. So this is the, the theory is that, well, the problem is you have all these rich people who are evading taxes and you hire all these new IRS agents, we'll be able to audit all these rich people and, and get more money in taxes. Now, by the way, most of the auditing that's done by the IRS is not targeted toward the, the very wealthy. It's targeted to the middle class and a whole bunch of it is targeted toward people who have been claiming these tax credits and uh stimulus payments that they're that that were that were part of the the previous stimulus bills so if you look this up a huge number of the audits that are going on are somebody claiming one of these child tax credits or some other tax credit that was made uh available as part of the stimulus and the IRS sending them the letter saying really you know prove to us that you actually are eligible for this thing because of course there's you know rampant possibility for for fraud or for people to uh to either by error or deliberately claim a tax credit and claim a, a, a subsidy payment uh, a stimulus payment that that they're not actually entitled to so of course you know they're saying this is to, this is to audit the rich it's probably a lot of it's going to go to audit the middle class and even the poor but um this idea that taxing the rich why this is in the inflation reduction act is that they actually have the idea that, well, the problem with inflation is basically rich people are driven by profit and they're greedy and they want profits and so they're raising prices. And so therefore, if we tax, if we put a lot of taxes on the rich people, somehow that will tamp down the greed or that will that will somehow, um, you know, by, by taking money away from the rich people, that will help fight inflation. That is the literal mindset that they have. It's, it's sort of a, a running joke uh, on, on the internet that, you know, this idea that greed causes inflation, you know, and people put graphs of, well, during periods of low inflation, does that mean that there was no greed, right? <laughs> so, so the, the graphs of rising inflation and falling inflation is actually the graphs of increasing greed and decreasing greed among the wealthy. And of course it makes no sense you know, that, of course, you know, people want to make money. People want to make a profit. That is the one constant of the business world. It you know the question of whether they're able to or have to raise prices or lowering prices is obviously caused by something else. Um, now the other th aspect of this, is, the other thing that was thrown into this stimulus bill, or sorry, I call it the stimulus bill because that's my mindset on it, into this Inflation Reduction Act that they think is inflation reducing, is they actually also managed to sneak in. I think it made it to the final version of the bill. They managed to sneak in. A um, a provision for drug uh, uh, price controls, so price controls on pharmaceuticals, and again, this is the mindset that you know the cause of inflation is greedy businessmen, and so if we want to reduce inflation, the way to do it is you have the government put price controls to the, the to to control that greed. We say to pharmaceutical manufacturers in this case, you can't raise the prices, and we're gonna we're gonna determine uh, uh, impose on you what the prices are that you can charge for these things. And you know, we all know how well price controls work to stop inflation under Richard Nixon. And they they are totally undeterred and they're going to try to do it again. Um and uh so that's I think that's the big the big picture of 
the Inflation Reduction Act is from the name to the context to the various things they're trying to do. It is basically, it's this, it's this carnival of evasion of reality uh, that they don't want to face up to what the facts are that are actually leading to inflation and what the facts are that actually drive the economy. And they want to pretend that, well, we can keep spending all this you know money that we don't have. We can keep spending it endlessly over and over again. And we could do that while not you know, they, they originally claimed we could do that while not having inflation. And now they're saying we could do that while relabeling it as fighting inflation. Uh, but none of it deals with any of the fundamental problems. The only good thing about the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, from what I can tell, is the fact that it's smaller. It, it's not that big. And so maybe it won't be enough hundreds of trillions. You know, the old saying, uh, they used to say a billion here, a billion there. Pretty soon you're talking about real money. These days, it's $100 billion here, $100 billion there. Pretty soon, you're talking about real money. Maybe this won't be enough hundreds of billions to have a big impact. All right, All right. David, any uh, thoughts you'd like to also contribute to that? David, you're muted. <laughs> There's also the, um, it, it's a, they snuck in some um, climate um, environmental stuff into it uh, with big subsidies for electrical vehicles and for um, uh, other changes in, you know, in to manufacture. Um, there's a, there's also this big industrial policy um, part of it, which is mainly in another act uh, that provide money to chip makers. Um, yes. The chip, so act, yeah. It's, it's not only, um, you know, a <clears throat> not only uh, a fraud in terms of inflation reduction. It is an, an expansion of an old bad idea of industrial planning. I mean, I, we've been reading about this since the seventies or earlier, and it, you know, goes back. Actually, goes back to fascism and the New Deal. Um, so the idea, you know, just one of those ideas that will not die. Yeah, and an interesting thing is that, you know, you got Joe Biden in office, who's supposed to be the non-Trump. You know, he's, he's not Donald Trump. But on trade and immigration, he kind of is, you know, he's not that different. He has not really done major things to reverse policy, uh, the, the uh, Trump administration policies on those two issues. Because, again, he's an old fashioned Democrat, the old. And I remember the days in which the old fashioned Democrats were, you know, uh, they represented Detroit and, you know, these China, the Japanese back then it was the Japanese before it became China. The Japanese are taking our way, our jobs. And so we have to have quotas and, and limits and huge tariffs on automobiles. Uh, and, you know, it's that same instinct of, of, of being anti-trade. The funniest thing actually emerged from the uh, uh, the, the so-called Inflation Reduction Act is that they combined the subsidies for electric cars. They combined that with the buy in America provisions. So there's sub massive subsidies for electric cars if those electric cars are mostly made in the US. Well, most of the batteries in the electric cars, I mean, every model of electric car that's on the market, the batteries are made in China and they don't qualify for the subsidies because their parts are not enough of their parts are made in the US. So they pass this massive subsidy for electric electric cars in theory that is basically taken back by their buy America, make it made in America provisions. Right. Uh, so the government, the government giveth and the government taketh away. Um, and uh, uh, that's the other thing I want to mention about the, environmental stuff because you know again expect to see inflation reduction tacked onto everything out there because they decided okay the public cares about inflation if we name self inflation reduction the public will love us for it but then they use it to pass whatever legislation they already wanted to do so one of the things here is to do a sort of you know not just a scaled version of back version of, the, of a stimulus bill but also a scaled back back version of the green new deal massive subsidies the only good thing about that is, again, this is a product of Joe Manchin from West Virginia. And, you know, from West Virginia, what's he concerned about? He's coal. He, he wants to save coal. So, I mean, that's that's the interest of his home constituents. He's representing them. And so the thing that he did that I find interesting about this is that you got a lot of environmental stuff. But Joe Manchin basically took out the more punitive aspects of the Green New Deal. So it doesn't really ban anything. So instead of banning things, it subsidizes things. Uh, 
So it was more like, we're going to, we, we're not going to ban coal. We're not going to take these measures to eliminate these things, but we're going to throw in lots of money to subsidize these things. And then, and then we're going to mess up the subsidies uh, so that they, they won't necessarily work. Well, the power to subsidize is the power to destroy. That's an old, uh, you know, political. Well, originally, power. it was the power to tax is the power to destroy, but the power to subsidize has. Well, maybe I didn't just invented that. But if you whatever you subsidize is going to um, be better able to compete against what the market would have done um, on a pure cost um, and and um, consumer demand basis, so that. Um, you know, the only reason I, the electric car sells so well is that, you, you know, you can buy one for 50, 60,000, whatever, however many thousand dollars, but you get a, a, a tax credit or um, refund back. Yeah. And uh, I've also, I know some people who have, who have installed uh, satellite, uh, not satellite, but uh, solar panels on the roofs. And it's something that economically would not really make sense that, you know, you, you pay this huge amount and you, you know, you get free electricity, but it takes so long to pay for it that it doesn't make sense. But with the massive subsidies, it makes sense. So, you know, so there, it pays itself off. It pays for itself in five years or seven years instead right. of 30 years. And so, yeah, that's another, it, what's going to happen is going to be massive malinvestment in terms of people building lots of things they wouldn't have built under market price signals because it wouldn't have made any sense. But the government's going to push them into saying, no, 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 build this instead. Uh, and they're going to build things that, that don't make economic sense but they're, they're doing it because they're getting a subsidy for it. And in that respect, this is another tool of industrial policy, uh, mm -hmm. government planning, because uh, you can plan, uh, exert control either by regulation, by forbidding or mandating something, or by um, it less directly subsidizing what you want at the, at the cost of um, any of its market competitors. Well, I, I think, you know, one of the things I'm interested, I'm endlessly fascinated by it, and you see it in politics all the time, is this sort of undead ideas, right? Yeah, ideas that have been tried, have failed repeatedly, have basically been refuted, but people cling to them. And, well, I think we'll get to a second to why they cling to them. But the two big examples that I'm seeing here are central planning. You know, industrial policy is just a, a new rebranded term for more scaled back, indirect, more modest mm -hmm. so central planning. And and the other one is uh, uh, basically the idea of, of, of just government throwing money everywhere and spending as much money as it likes uh, that, you know, the government had, can, can, can spend money endlessly. So the two things that have come up here is industrial policy is the name for central planning reborn under a new name and let's act as if it will work this time. And then the other one is modern monetary theory. So part of how we got into this mess with inflation is you had a bunch, there's a little clique of economists, or I would call those more pseudo-economists because it's not really a theory, but they had this thing called modern monetary theory, which they basically said, you can spend endless amounts of money. The government can print money and spend it endlessly, and that will cause inflation. Now, you know, anyone with half a brain, anyone who's lived more than, you know, 40 years uh, we'll remember a time when that wasn't true, when, when we saw that happen, when we saw inflation hit because we were spending too much money. But again, these ideas just stay alive and people find a new name for it and they find a new catchphrase and they find new rationalizations and try the same old thing over and over again. But of course, you know, uh, from the standpoint, uh, you know, objectivism uh, uh, understands the importance of people's philosophical convictions and especially their moral convictions. And yeah. they're so wedded to those to, to certain basic moral premises that, you know, to make those, to make that moral code work, you know, the real undead idea here is the moral code of altruism, which says, you know, it's, it's your job, every, everyone's job to sacrifice, to help other people. And uh, that instead of having a society based on mutual self-interest where we all pursue our self-interest to engage in trade and build things and grow, society should be based on sacrifice. It should be based on you being taxed in order to provide money to the poor. And that's what's going to make for an ideal society. And it's been tried in its various implementations so many times, but that fundamental moral commitment people have that, you know, altruism is considered practically synonymous with morality. If you don't believe in the welfare state, you're a cruel Scrooge who, you know, who hates the poor. Um, 
that those those ideas are so deeply ingrained that people will then come try to come up with keep resurrecting all the implementations of that theory and say oh no you know government planning everything and telling us all what to do yes that will actually work this time under this new version that we call industrial policy or you know government you know, endlessly spending money to to for, to give things away to people free that'll work this time under this new theory that we call modern monetary theory and it it it's it's new and it works because it's called modern right it's not the old one it's called modern we put modern in the name so you know that it's new and it's it's, it's progressive and and you know we've got some bright new idea behind it so again i think it's it's the it's these fundamental sort of philosophical and moral commitments people have that they want to keep alive they don't want to give up yeah. on them and so they they re resurrect these these discredited theories and discredited practices again and again well and the other the flip side of that is i mean the the uh, altruism the idea of sacrifice is the it, the direct expression of that is a welfare state um <clears throat> But the other, but the other aspect of that is greed is evil, and the market runs by greed. So people can't can't accept the idea that you know markets are are not chaotic, that they're not exploitative, um, that they're driven by trade, win win kind of transactions, and so there's got to be something wrong. And government is, you know, government at least is not about greed. Right, right. No. I mean, greed, greed is the pejorative way of referring to self-interest. And right. they, you know, if self-interest is evil, then it must be the source of many evil results. It must be the, the must the reason why we have inflation must be because people are acting on their self-interest. And you know, it leads yeah. to these bizarre claims that you know, when inflation wasn't happening, were people not self-interested? Where was there a wave of altruism that that hit hit America from? You know, do we become an altruist, uh, an ideal altruist society from 1980 to roughly to you know, uh, to until 2020? You know, we had a 30-year period with very low inflation. Was that a wave of altruism that turned us into an ideal altruist society where people not acting according to self-interest? I mean. Yeah, you know, it's an absurdity, but you can see why they have to. People why they have a to. A lot of money during that time. A <laughs> yeah. lot of money. <laughs> well, and, and you know, eighties was the era of of greed is greed is good, and and yeah, yeah and of, of of Wall Street and all that. So, um, but you see that you know they have to sort of create these absurd rationalizations in order to cover up, in order to not have to question the underlying absurdity, which is what's the matter with self-interest? You know, and I, I it, yeah. one thing that continually strikes me is we live in a society in which most people actually act on what you would call rational self-interest or enlightened self-interest. They act on it implicitly, yeah. right? In their, in their business lives, even in their personal lives, for the most part, they actually act on this on, on, on this theory that what we would explicitly call and identify as a theory of rational self-interest. But in theory, they all accept that altruism is the essence of morality, that self-interest self is bad and self-sacrifice is, is good. And so they live by one creed uh, while accepting and endorsing another. And that's how you get all these, these contradictions and absurdities that keep popping up is they cannot, they can't figure it out. They have either they through not encountering the right arguments or through stubborn resistance, they're not willing to harmonize how they actually live with their actual, with their theory of the world. And, and when you act on one morality, um, but believe in another, that's a prescription for guilt. And I think guilt is a big driver of a lot of things on the part of people who are uh, wealthy. Yeah. Um, I mean, again, there's pride and in success, well-earned in, in most cases, and guilt about success. How did this happen to me? And you see it you know, all the way from Warren Buffett on down. Yeah, you see a lot of talk recently about in the recent years about the term virtue signaling, that the various things that people do and causes they endorse in order to signal their virtue. And it raises the question of, well, why are people so desperate to signal to the outside world that they're that they're good guys and that they're virtuous by adopting whatever the latest, uh, you know, the sort of uh, mainstream or socially acceptable causes? And I think that that issue of guilt of living by one code and, and believing another and having to sort of to to cover up that contradiction i think that explains a lot of why people become so susceptible to that virtue signaling impulse 
of, well, you know, it, I mean, a Tesla, for example, a Tesla electric cars, we're talking about that. A Tesla is a really nice car. You know, the Elon Musk's big, uh, the big achievement of Tesla, uh, under especially under Musk, has been that, you know, before that electric cars were sort of environmental hair shirts. Like you bought, you got a Prius. It was this tiny little tin can of a car. It was small. It was underpowered, but you did it to show you're being a good person. And Elon Musk realized, no, no, make it a really big, expensive luxury car, uh, make, you know, and, and make it a really nice car so that you could have a really nice car. You could buy a really nice, nice car, which is what you wanted to do because that's your self-interest. But you can do it while also saying, I'm doing something that's good for an environment, so I'm a good person. And that I think the Tesla sort of uh, uh, encapsulates, that aspect of the Tesla encapsulates that issue of people living by one code. Uh, and believing another and having to then sort of cover up that disjunction by saying, well, I bought myself a really nice car, but I did it for the environment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My little contribution. <laughs> well, to that point, and speaking of electric cars, um, I have gotten a lot of questions coming in. I want to encourage oh, everyone who's watching that. Please submit your questions through YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Zoom, anywhere you're watching. We're going to try to take some now, and we'll take more at the end. But speaking about electric cars, like you just mentioned, uh, Aria4L asks, if we really care about the environment and electric cars, why not subsidize Elon Musk? Which I guess this is in reference to that big climate <laughs> meeting at the White House where everyone except uh, Elon Musk was invited from all the big car companies. Well, I mean, the reason Elon Musk wasn't invited is because he's sort of turned more vaguely to the right and sort of anti-cancel culture and that sort of thing. And so he's become, uh, you know, from being a hero to the left, he's become sort of an unperson to the left. Um, but the, uh, the answer to that actually is we have been subsidizing Elon Musk. We've been doing a lot of subsidizing of Elon Musk all along. Um, I mean, you know, the whole, his whole business has, you know, like I said, the the, the subsidies for electric cars have been central crucial to his business and the fact that we've never cut off the subsidies they, they're you know always they always kept them flowing that's been central to the success of of tesla and that's not in counting also the fact that his more successful business than tesla was is spacex which by the way huge accomplishment and i'm a big fan of spacex but you know it's a government contractor essentially i mean a lot of uh now some of it does I, i'm a big fan of spacex because i'm talking to you right now from starlink which is his satellite internet service which works way better than the old version i had <laughs> i'm extremely grateful to elon musk for that thank you elon but a lot of what starlink does uh, what uh what spacex does is it's a government contractor it it makes money from you know big government contracts so that's been a you know a source of his business. Now he he does this more cheaply for the federal government than they were doing it for themselves, and that than other contractors were doing before this. The price of launch has gone way down per per kilogram of payload. So you know if he's going to be living off the government, at least he's he's providing a better value for them. But you know we have been subsidizing um, uh, Elon Musk. I think the more pungent question is. If we really care, everything go all electric, and we really cared about global warming, why don't we? Why aren't we subsidizing nuclear energy? And the answer to that is simple, which is that you know the the environmentalist movement did not start to address global warming. It started to scaremonger about various forms of modern technology, foremost among which was nuclear power. Right, so they stopping a three mile island and stopping nuclear energy. That was the thing that environmentalism as a movement was doing before they discovered global warming. And so they can't, now that they've discovered global warming made that their central cause, they can't just turn back and say, okay, let's build nuclear power plants. But I mean, if we really wanted to go all electric, um, I don't think we have to. I, I, I do. I agree that, you know, fossil fuels are still a good fuel. They're still the most economical thing in many, in many cases. But if we really wanted to go all electric, we'd go all nuclear. But again, these uh, the the it's the effect of undead ideas. You know that that anti-nuke sentiment was part of the founding ideology of environmentalism, and so they can't give it up. Okay, uh, got another question here. Uh, sort of going back to the IRS portion of the uh, inflation bill. This comes from Jackson Monroe on Twitter asking, what is your take on the now deleted post by the IRS for armed agents? This was in relation to, I believe it was uh, an article posted last week talking about how 
a job posting mentioned they need people with law enforcement capabilities within the IRS to use both skills to track down those who are potentially committing fraud. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, you know, I, it doesn't. I don't think it matters actually because here's the thing that the IRS gets its power of enforcement from its ability to throw you in jail, right? So even if the IRS agents don't have the guns, behind everything the IRS does, behind its entire ability to collect money from you is the fact that at some point, if you resist, if you don't want to pay that money, at some point, guys with guns are going to show up. Right? They're going to show up to repossess property. Um, to actually your bank and say, uh, this person, you know, this is something you used to be able to do. They could go to your bank and say, this person owes us money. We're seizing it from their bank account. Well, yeah, uh, that now one thing that the good thing the Republicans did in the 90s is they did pass some laws that 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 ratcheted back some of the enforcement powers mm-hmm. of the IRS. And they can't just go take your house or take your property as e- and nowhere near as easily as they used to be able to uh, or seize your bank account as he's nowhere near as easily as they used to be able to. But, you know, the thing about you know government is force and it doesn't matter whether one agency or another is hiring armed agents the fact is that somebody with a gun is going to show up to enforce that eventually david anything you'd like to add uh no good answer i agree with rob okay uh in that case we're about the halfway mark so i'd like to sort of pivot us to the second topic of today but as i mentioned those of you i see your questions i'm logging here we'll try to get to as many as we can closer to the end but david please uh talk to us about the supreme court decision in executive power Okay, yeah, this uh, this term of the court that ended in June was uh, one of the more significant ones. Um, of course, the uh, you know the major headline here is the overturning of Roe v. Wade, but there, uh, which I you know I'm, I'm very sorry to, at, at that decision. I think it was poorly argued and is not a step in the right direction. But be that as it may, um, there's also some good news, and one of them uh, was another case that may turn out to be fairly important. Uh, and that was a case in which uh, that involved the EPA and the administrative powers that the uh, executive agencies uh, can, can uh, exercise. Um, it starts with the Clean Air Act of 1970, which um, gave the EPA authority to set limits on pollutants. Um, they, you know, at that time, the pollutants in question were mostly particulates, um, lead, sulfur oxides, and stuff like that. Um, but first, that, and it also applied a lot to um, putting controls on, on automobiles. Um, but for stationary sources like power plants, uh, there was a provision that um, the EPA was authorized to create best practices, best standards, um, to apply um, to reduce pollution there. Um, fast forward to the Obama administration, they created something called the Clean Power Plan, which um, would, uh, it was a radical extension of the Clean Air Act in the sense that the Clean Air Act and, and um, the uh, amendments since that time had looked at power plants um, as, as stationary sources, and you, you, each one is con- limited in, on how much you can put out. Um, what the Obama uh, Clean Power Plan wanted to do was to systematize. It was called uh, um, uh, generation shifting. That is, it, 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 it was an attempt to give the EPA, EPA power to require a shift from one source of generation like coal to another like um, natural gas. And eventually what it envisioned was um, that there would be shifting across industries and regions um, where each company, where all the different power plants would be you know, recruited into one herd and managed that way and, and um, manipulated into changing uh, or forced into changing all their uh, method, but ultimately to use um, wind and power, so-called renewables. 
Um, I, for example, the gold, I mean, the, the, it had the plan involved a pretty radical um, goal of reducing um, coal generation from 38% of all power generation to 27%. And although that doesn't seem like a huge change um, when it is happening through force and not through you know, improvements in technology or market forces, it, was, it would have come at a tremendous cost. Um, according to one point made in the Supreme Court decision, um, no company would have been able to comply fully with it. So um, the, the Supreme Court, you know, um, it, it put a stay on that plan in 2016 when it came out. And then Trump got elected and he replaced that, you know, new staff at the EPA. They came up with a different plan that was much more modest um, and restricted to just individual plants um, and their whatever emissions they had. But then of course, um, what happened since um, Biden came in, um, the EPA and a number of environmental groups sued to reinstate that plan or some updated version of it. And the, um, the court held against it. It said the Clean Air Act does not give the EPA this, um, this power, that the burden was on the uh, regulatory agency to show that it actually was given this authorization by Congress and it couldn't because it, it wasn't given it. And so the ruling, um, the ruling is significant uh, potentially because um, the, the um, decision written by Chief Justice Roberts was involved something called the major questions doctrine, which had been introduced or used uh, occasionally in, in recent decisions, but he, he made it front and center in his um, opinion. And what it said is that um, if an agency wants to um, take exercise a regulatory power, if that power is extensive, if it involves a uh, uh, power over a substantial part of the economy, uh, then it, it, it must be subject to strict, stricter scrutiny by the courts. And among the tests for whether something is a major question is not only the extent of the uh, Im impact on the economy as a whole, but also whether the, and very importantly, the issue of whether Cong Congress authorized this. You know, when Congress passes a law, there's always some discretion involved and when, when the executive branch comes to execute it, enforce it. And you know, laws are written in, <laughs> in language which is conceptual, but then you have to specify um, some of the details. So there's room for discretion, but uh, what the court was saying that's a very limited amount. And if, if what you're trying to do is a major change in regulatory policy and consequences, you, you better be able to show that Congress gave you that power. And, um, and this, is, first of all, speaks to a real problem. Congress has been you know, just waving its hands, creating powers, uh, creating these regulatory agencies. It's been doing this you know, for a, a long time really, but it, especially in the last four decades. And just saying, okay, do this. And in vague language or unspecific language that the regulatory agents, uh, agencies have said, okay, well, it, it's up to us to interpret the law, not just to enforce the law as written, but to interpret it and figure out what it means and what it um, implies. And in this particular case, um, Congress had, as the court said, conspicuously not authorized this e expansion of power. Bills had come up and they never passed. Even during, uh, you know, the Obama years when, uh, you know, when the Democrats had all three branches. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, both branches of Congress and the presidency. So um, this is a doctrine that's important procedurally. Um, uh, and it, it's, a, in a way, a culmination of some re other recent decisions over, over the last wee while, where the, where the 
government is, um, the courts, Supreme Court in particular, is um, trimming back the expansive grants of power that have been exercised by the regulatory agencies. In this respect, that it's, it's a step against something called the Chevron doctrine, the Chevron deference, which let me explain. Uh, this comes from a, a, a case called Chevron USA versus the National Resources Defense Council in 1984. Uh, in the previous decade, um, and early into the um, in Reagan's first term, they were the administration was trying to do a lot of deregulation, but the judiciary, especially at the circuit court level, the appeals court level, were um, largely liberal appointed with an expansive view of legitimate government power. And so they, they shot down a lot of the uh, regulatory efforts, but uh, that tide was turned and um, it, it was, um, unfortunately, in a way, it was turned by this Chevron doctrine, which established a legal test um, for reviewing an administrative agency's uh, interpretation of the statute that it's governed by. And it accords a great deal of judicial deference to the agency's interpretation. Um, if the statute is ambiguous, that is, if Congress has not clearly forbidden the agency from doing this, then the presumption is that uh, the agency's honestly interpreting it and going forward um, on, on, on this interpretation, because after all, they are the experts in this field. The judges are not experts. That was, that was the rationale. So this is a doctrine of deference. It's called Chevron deference, deference where the courts have been very reluctant to um, uh, do anything to limit the power of um, agencies. <clears throat> and uh, it kind of gives the burden of proof. That it, it pushes the burden of proof onto the plaintiffs who are opposing it, onto the deregulators or opponents of a given regulation. Um, and it, it essentially gives gives the, uh, the agency's primary role of not just enforcing legislation, but interpreting what it says. Um, <clears throat> so, I mean, government, uh, government regulation had been expanding for decades before 1984, but this uh, doctrine accelerated and, um, and we've seen the, you know, continuing acceleration um, over the years, despite what party is in power. So this is um, the West Virginia versus EPA decision is a step back from the Chevron doctrine and says that uh, the Supreme Court is as set as, as a test that if a major question is involved, if the more significant that an agency's um, action will be, the more closely we're going to watch to make sure that it was authorized by Congress, because Congress is the only source of law, and um, agencies are just supposed to be executors. Um, however, there's this is my third point. I'm, I've been kind of giving you the case briefly, and then secondly, the the, the Chevron um, counter Chevron implications. But there's a third level here that goes back even further historically, and that is that since a New Deal, economic freedom has been considered a second-class citizen under, under uh, federal law and the Supreme Court decisions, a second-class citizen as opposed to the uh, things like freedom of speech, um, freedom of religion, uh, the uh, equal treatment by the law, uh, non-discrimination, equal protection. And this was made explicit in a, <clears throat> a case from 1938 called uh, U.S. versus Caroline Products, which had a famous footnote number four. <laughs> Funny that it's a, the best remembered thing about this case. Um, but it, I mean, it said there's this, it is the, this hierarchy of rights. Okay, this was a Caroline, the, the the case in, was a milk producer who was um, um, adding some, I think, um, 
harmless oil to the milk and that made it cheaper uh, during the depression. And, but there was a ban on it, the milk producers cartel, now not a cartel, but the, the industry group said, no, we don't want any competition from cheaper products. So there was a rule against it. Um, and Caroline was, was saying, no, we, you know, this is legitimate. We, you know, you're, you're violating our economic freedom to produce a, a safe, honest product. And uh, anyway, so the court uh, ruled against the company and uh, in favor of the ban uh, that had been imposed by a number of states. And in the course of it, it, it explicitly established a distinction between two tiers of rights. On the top tier, there was um, some of the First Amendment, uh, I'm sorry, some of the Bill of Rights, like first, uh, rights like the uh, First Amendment, um, search and seizure, um, conspicuously not the eighth, uh, Ninth and Tenth Amendments, which um, <laughs> say that there are rights unenumerated that uh, have, are not uh, given up by the people. So anyway, just the named ones and um, uh, access, equal access to voting, uh, civil procedures, equal treatment of um, minorities, all of that is top tier. And we give it strict scrutiny. Any, any limitation on that has to be shown to be um, narrowly tailored to a compelling government interest. I mean, these are legal terms, narrowly tailored to a compelling legal interest, <clears throat> which is the same standard that applies to things like um, First Amendment libel laws or shining fire in a crowded theater, causing a stampede. Those things that are they're banned, but only because they're um, extraordinary and they or, or they're, they're they're special and limited. Uh, but the bottom tier, the second tier, um, is the non-fundamental uh, liberties: are the right to own property, the right to earn a living the right to contract. And in these, um, these are, the government may regulate and control them um, <clears throat> by various means. And the courts will only give a, a what's called a rational basis test, not strict scrutiny that, that the agency or government has to prove that this is the only way to get a job done, but only do they have a rational basis. And, that rational basis test is pretty easily passed. And uh, what I was talking about before, the Chevron doctrine made it really easy to pass because the courts granted that, that discretion and authority to the agencies. So um, the underlying problem here, the basic philosophical, uh, basic political problem is the separation of, into two categories of rights, the important ones and the less important ones. And that's why we have for many years have had um, a, a government regulation of the economy, but relative freedom of uh, speech, religion, expression. Um, I think that's being eroded now by it, various factors, but it's ultimately, and I'll, I'll leave you with this philosophical thought. Um, this is an expression of the mind body issue. It's, Things of the mind, things of the spirit are elevated and sacred and to be protected. Things of the body like production, trade, commerce, work, all of that is more mundane of less moral significance and less worthy of protection. And um, that's the underlying problem. We, it's, that's so woven deeply, so, so woven woven so deeply, sorry, uh, into our uh, political um, system that, you know, it's not going to get changed. But, I, you know, this is something that as an objectivist, um, I want to point out because ultimately this is a philosophical premise at a very deep level driving um, this entire issue of, uh, and in that respect, I think the West Virginia case, the Supreme Court's decision in June is, is great. It's hopefully a step in the right direction, um, but we still have a long way to go. Okay. Thank you, David. Rob, anything you want to yeah. share? 
I'm, I'm really glad you brought up that point about mind body dichotomy. It, it, it actually goes back to one of the very first things I read by Ayn Rand many, many years ago yeah. that made me really set up and say, whoa, this, this, this person has something really interesting to say was that point that she was making. Um, about how I think she had this thing, you know, that this, uh, because this is the old 20th century liberal thing is that we're going to, we're all going to be free spirited, free thinkers, but we're going to live in a totally planned, regulated economy. And, and, you know, there's a contradiction there. And so she described it as was that we're all going to be uh, uh, free spirits, freewheeling to the farthest corners of the galaxy in our minds, but wearing chains from nose to toes when we cross the street <laughs> to buy a loaf of bread. Right. And so this is, you know, brilliant identification of how that attitude of of uh they want to have that contradiction of total freedom in one realm and total control in the other and ultimately it, it's there's no way you could possibly make that work it was i think margaret thatcher about that time who said about the time i read that margaret thatcher said uh freedom is indivisible that you can't have freedom in one area and not freedom in another and i think that this um west virginia case and the whole you know chevron deference and all and and the rational basis test that's that splitting up of rights. That is a demonstration of that because what we got really is we decided we're going to downgrade uh, economic freedom. So prior to that was what was called the Lochner era. Uh, the yeah. Lochner versus New York was a famous case in which the uh, the Supreme Court basically says we're going to protect property rights and freedom of contract the same way we would protect freedom of speech yeah. and the First Amendment, actually probably more so uh, given, given how lightly protected that was at the time. Um, so they said, yeah, we're going to treat it like a fundamental right, and it's going to be protected by the by the courts. And then what happened is, you know, FDR railed against the nine old men on the court and eventually got was in office long enough to replace them all with replace enough of them with his guys that he got them to make this you know, re repudiation of the Lochner uh, standards. And so we had this experiment of, OK, well, what happens if you decide that we're going to make that differentiation? We're going to have strong protections for freedom of speech for you know for the for these other kinds of freedoms and no protection for economic freedom and one of the results was you actually get essentially a dictatorial regime when it comes to uh uh you you, you end up undermining a free society on a very fundamental level because what you create is a government bureaucracy that has essentially unlimited and unchecked power yeah, that is able to create all these rules and regulations and basically do whatever it wants. And that in the uh, this recent case, West Virginia versus EPA, um, what getting at, and you mentioned this earlier, is that it wasn't just that they were saying, "Oh, we're going to put limits on this particular pollutant or or emission." It was they had a plan for literally central planning restructuring of the yeah. entire energy industry, uh, the entire the economy. They, they had this central planning reconstruction based on the very flimsiest basis in in in, in actual legislation passed by Congress. Yeah. But the way they could do that is that the sense of deference. And I think you said that um, the, the great formulation of that was uh, um, basically that under, under Chevron deference, uh, which was built on top of the Rational Basis Act, there was this rule that basically anything that is not explicitly forbidden is permitted to the yeah. to the agencies, and that rule, anything that's not explicitly forbidden, forbidden is permitted. That's a great rule when applied to individuals out there in the world. It's applied to citizens, right? That's <laughs> supposed to be what a free yeah. society is applied to citizens. Right. Anything not explicitly permitted, you is or anything not explicitly forbidden is permitted. The default is you can do what you want, and government has to come up with a reason. And what this attempt to regulate economic freedom did. Is it totally inverted that? And yeah. it created a system in which anything that is not explicitly forbidden to the government, it can do whatever it likes. It can restructure whole industries. It can it can dispose of your life as it likes. So I think it's good that, you know, John, this is the great promise of John Roberts, by the way, is that he and the, on the lower courts, he had expressed that skepticism toward that. Uh, overarching regulatory power of Congress. And when he was nominated, I got very excited because I thought, okay, maybe somebody's going to finally pull back mm -hmm. these powers. And he's doing it, but you're right that fundamentally what's driving it is this idea that we can have, you know, totally the totally freewheeling free spirits in every other realm, but have total control over economics and that that's that you can divide freedom that way. And of course you can't. Yeah. 
Now, I'd also point out that these days, of course, you know, the left has moved on from the 20th century left, 20th century liberals, and now they don't really believe in, in freedom in, in, the, in, the, in the free speech realm. Uh, they don't believe they don't have a strong belief in that anymore. Well, many of the arguments that were uh, made by uh, sort of modern welfare state regulatory liberals <clears throat> for most of the 20th century, um, many of those arguments of, uh, about why we need a regulation of, of, um, of, of uh, industry and commerce are not, began being applied and are now being uh, extensively applied to realms of speech and religion. And the key one being the idea of coercion. The idea, you know, people, businesses coerce their workers, they coerce their consumers, uh, and on and on and on. Well, now people are applying that to ideas. We coerce each other by what we say. We harm each other. And therefore, it has that too's got to be regulated. That's the direction we're going. I mean, and I mean, it's another indication that freedom is one. Uh, freedom is single, unitary. Um, and so anyway, I, yeah, that's a great point. I, I, I know we're getting to the uh, near the end. And Lawrence, you have some more questions, I, I think. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we have about four minutes left, but I do want to get at least this one question uh, for the both of you to consider. This comes from Malcolm's, uh, no, this comes from uh, Carolyn Trimmer. That's it. And she asked, do you think the Supreme, Supreme Court should take a more active role in interceding on the laws that are being passed by Congress? Or should it be far more reserved in its rulings? Okay, I want to take that one because I think active versus reserved is is the wrong category. You know, it, it's sort of like, you know, um, they, they should be active when they need to be active and reserved when they ought to be reserved. So you have to have some other some other principle. And I think the, the other principle is that they're, they should be in the business of protecting rights, of protecting individual rights. Yeah. They should be active and vigorous, vigilant at reigning in government when it violates people's rights, including their property rights and the rights of trade and commerce. Um, and it should be reserved when it comes to uh, um, uh, uh, to things that do not affect either, you know, the lower decisions that do not affect rights or or to um, uh, to not blocking things that give us greater freedom. Uh, now, one of the things we meant just something I wanted to bring up today, which is that I think this interesting bookend between this uh, West Virginia versus EPA and the Roe v. Wade, the overturning of Roe v. Wade, I uh, think. Jackson Women's Health Organization, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. Yeah. So there's an interesting book because in, in, the, in the overturning of Roe v. Wade, part of that was that they were basically limiting the recognition of unenumerated rights. Now they're, they're creating a, the Supreme Court, I, in my view of, of that decision, and I think we've done a show on this before, um, uh, that they were limited, they were putting limits and restrictions on, on what they would recognize as unenumerated rights under the Ninth Amendment. And on the other hand, then at least in here that they're in the Jack in the in the West Virginia versus EPA case, they're kind of going the other direction. They're putting some limits on recognized as the enumerated powers of the of the government. And that's that that's those are the two sort of twin issues in the Constitution that I think are crucial, central to the whole thing, is that we're supposed to be a government which has very strict, limited, enumerated powers for the government, and it sticks only to what is strictly necessary for those enumerated powers. The government right. that's the free will and create powers, it has only what's enumerated to it. But on the other hand, the Ninth Amendment has, and that, so that's Article One. You know, it has the government, the Congress shall have power to do this, and it lists a bunch of things. And the idea is that's the list. That's what you get to do, and nothing else. And on the other hand, we have the Ninth Amendment, which says, well, you know, we've recognized certain rights in the, in the, in the Bill of Rights, but there are other rights not enumerated that are retained by the people. So that's supposed to be the rule. The government is limited. The government is limited. The people are unlimited. The government has only its enumerated powers. The people have many unenumerated rights. And you see the Supreme Court and the conservative majority kind of go in two opposite directions here. Uh, when it comes to abortion, they're limiting the unenumerated rights. 
Mm-hmm. But when it comes to the uh, economic regulation, because they have the mind-body dichotomy too on the right, right? They they, they want to have more limits and more control. They want to control the realm of, of personal morality and have us more free in the economic realm. So they're at least they're tamping down the enumerated powers, you know, strict limiting Congress more to its enumerated powers when it comes to, um, to economics. So, yeah, and I think, uh, you know, there's long been this uh, issue of judicial activism. Conservatives uh, accused the liberal justices uh, and uh, lower courts of judicial activism. Uh, and then, the, you know, now people, people on the other side are accusing conservative justices of judicial activism. Uh, I, Rob, I think you're absolutely right. The issue is not activism. It's what are you acting for? Defending rights or limiting government? If it's not there, uh, yeah, in one case you should be, in that case, those cases you should be active, otherwise deferential. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much, David, Rob, for coming to do this current events panel. Um, I know there were a lot of other questions that people had, but we just ran out of time. So I encourage you all to uh, come back next week and ask any other questions you have there. Um, Next week on the Atlas Society Ask, we're going to be interviewing Charles Negi, a professor from the University of Central Florida, about his book, White Shaming, Bullying Based on Prejudice, Virtue Signaling, and Ignorance. And then if you would like to ask any questions of David or Rob, be sure to check out our events page. Next week on Monday, Robert Chazinski will be with our book club talking about his book what went right an objectivist uh, theory of history and then on thursday david will be doing a special ask me anything on clubhouse so again thank you everyone for watching david rob y'all take care thank you you too lawrence